0: Hey, good morning. morning. So we're in uh, week six of an eight-week sermon series that I've titled Unapologetic. And this morning, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off uh, last week talking about how to remain unapologetically loyal to Jesus as we address the uh, very hot topic issues of self and sin. And so last week, Uh, we saw that God is the definer. Like God is sovereign. God is the maker, the creator of all things. And He is the definer of all of our lives. Uh, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? You see, God needs no counselor. God needs no advisor. And He is not taking applications. And so this is a truth that God is the definer that we need to embrace. And in doing so, it will simplify, simplify your life. Uh, you won't have to figure out everything for yourself because God has spoken clearly in His Word. But it will also complicate your life because what God says often goes against the spirit of the age. See, God is the definer. That means that God is the one who gets to define right from wrong. And as we saw last week, that means that uh, when God gives a command, we need to obey the Word of the Lord. We need to obey His command, even the negative ones, but in the midst of even those negative commands, there are always three positives. God gives a command to protect us, like to protect us from being on the wrong path, knowing that sin leads to destruction and sin leads to death. He does it to provide for us because He knows the path of life and He knows that what we really want is life and ultimately He gives a command to proclaim that Jesus is enough in the midst of our struggle to obey what the Lord says or to kind of shy away from what the world is saying will bring us life and satisfaction, we need to understand that what Jesus says is always good and we can trust Him that He is enough. And so, God is the definer and that also means that God defines me. And of course, that's kind of where the problem is, right? Because we want to define life on our own terms including we want to define ourselves especially in this age of what we call expressive individualism in this age where the two great commandments are uh, follow your heart and be true to yourself. Of course, this is, though it's uh, spread and it's proclaimed far and wide, it really began a long time ago. This isn't anything new. It started a long, long time ago in the garden when during the temptation, uh, Eve saw that the fruit looked really good, and that it was desirable to make one wise. I mean, think about it. Eve got to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with the One who is the embodiment of all wisdom. God Himself, and yet she rejected the embodiment of wisdom for her own flavor of wisdom. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, what attracted Eve to the fruit was not just wisdom, but autonomous wisdom. That is wisdom that did not require reliance on and submission to God. Like Eve wanted to be self-defined. Eve wanted to decide for herself what was right and what was wrong. She wanted to be the one to call the shots. And so began our problem that we see today and have labeled expressive individualism. Uh, which is a trap and which is danger. I mean, uh, Professor Carl Truman puts it this way, when identity is psychologized and the pursuit of happiness becomes a subjective psychological matter, anything that challenges that paradigm is deemed damaging and oppressive. And guys, that's where we find ourselves today. That's why this is such a battleground. These issues of sexuality and gender are such a battleground because to push against that narrative, to go against the spirit of the age is deemed damaging and oppressive. And so this morning, as we talk about the uh, topics of uh, gender, of sexual expression, from a biblical perspective... I think it's more important than ever to remind us, remind us ourselves who this is for. Like who all of this is for. Okay? Like all of your life, as we've said from the beginning of this series, is a test of your loyalty to Jesus Christ. This, this series and this topic is all about loyalty to Jesus Christ, not an institution. Not a denomination, not even a religion, but it's all about loyalty to Christ Himself. And so this morning's topic is a topic that even many believers, like when they're asked about this, like believers feel the need to apologize for about 20 minutes when asked even a straightforward question like, what do you believe about sexuality and gender expression. So often for the first 20 minutes of this non-answer, they fall all over themselves apologizing for sins of the past and how this issue wasn't done, dealt with uh, grace and love. And I understand the heart behind that. But there's another group of believers who, when asked this question, skirt the issue altogether, change the subject, move on to something else. It's almost like you know, watching a White House press conference with a hard question, (laughs) right? And i got to tell you, I don't want to take either of these two approaches this morning, even though this is an emotionally charged issue and impacts all of us in this room because we all have friends and family members who this is the struggle with. Even though it's an emotionally charged issue and addressing this issue is kind of like tiptoeing through a minefield, There is a straightforward answer. And here's the straightforward answer to what do you believe about sexuality and gender expression? I side with Jesus. That's my answer. That's always going to be my answer. That will always be the answer of this church, your church. We side with Jesus completely and always on any and every topic. When I'm asked a question about something, my first thought is what does the Bible say about this? You know, you may ask me my favorite episode of The Office. I probably won't go to the Bible for that one. But you ask me any question of substance, any question that's weighty, any question that morally matters, I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to see what Jesus says about it. The actual, guys, the actual, historical, real Jesus, not woke Jesus. Right Here's woke uh, Jesus answering this question. You will slowly begin to understand my true teaching on sexuality around 2,000 years from now. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but there's actually a whole school of thought, a theological school of thought that uses what they call a trajectory hermeneutic to come up with that answer. The trajectory hermeneutic works this way. Hermeneutics is a a method or a science of interpreting language. And so what they say is, in the past, God spoke. I mean, really clearly about gender, about sexuality, but He did not intend that to be a teaching for all times, in all places, for all people. Instead, that teaching set us on a trajectory, like on a path. And now we have arrived 2,000 years after the resurrection at where it was pointing. And guys, I I want you to know there is a tiny bit of truth to that. Like there is with all of Satan's lies. And the tiny bit of tr- 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 truth is this God spoke in the past and path, and He did speak about life and love and sex and, you know, crime and death and law and grace and everything. And He set that on a trajectory, but that trajectory was pointing to a person who lived in the first century named Jesus. Like Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is the embodiment of the teaching on the law. Guys, He's what it's all about. He did not change the rules. He fulfilled those rules. Like His teaching on sexuality, on gender, on marriage, on whatever topic is what you have if you have a Bible with you in your lap. All 66 books are the Word of God. They're Jesus's like go-to book on what God says about any significant topic. And so, guys, we need to understand, I side with Jesus. You need to side with Jesus. We are men and women under authority. We have a Lord, and it's not us. And we need to trust Him completely. And so now, that's what I'll say in the sermon. If I was sitting with you, if this was an issue of personal struggle for you and i had the opportunity to sit across the table from you and and answer your questions and have an actual conversation i probably would not start with hey dude just trust god what's wrong with you like that's not a good counseling technique instead what i would do is i would want to tell you about the one in whom you can place your trust And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to introduce you to the one who you can trust with your sexuality. You can trust with your struggles, with your failures. I want to read to you as we start what I believe is the most lengthy and thorough description of Jesus we find in all of the Bible. Like This is a section of Scripture that has often been called the Gospel according to God because it is what the Father wanted His people to know about His Son. And as I read it from Isaiah 52 and 53, I, I, I hope that you will like focus on the words on the screen or close your eyes and let these words wash over you. Let them saturate you. God says, Behold, My servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw Him. His face was so disfigured, He seemed hardly human. And from His appearance, one could scarcely know He was a man. So He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in His presence. For they will see what they had not been told, and they will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about His appearance. Nothing to attract us to Him. In fact, He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on Him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses He carried. It was our sorrows that weighed Him down. And we thought His troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for His own sins, but He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, He did not open His mouth. Unjustly condemned, He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and he had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. And cause Him grief. Yet when His life is made an offering for sin, He will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in His hands. When He sees all that is accomplished by His anguish, He will be satisfied. And because of His knowledge, My righteous servant, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for He will bear all their sins. I will give Him the honors of a victorious soldier because He exposed Himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Christian, All of your life is a test of your loyalty to Him. Every decision, every opportunity, every struggle, every temptation, every tough topic that comes up is an opportunity for you to stand with Jesus. That's how the Father describes His one and only Son. In light of that, And in in light of the fact that all of my life is a test of my loyalty to Christ, including this sermon, what should we believe about sexuality and gender expression? Well, here's what we should believe. We should believe that God is the definer. God's the one who defines right and wrong. God is the one who defines me. Like God's the definer, not me. I don't want you to listen to my words. I want you to look at what the Bible says, what God has said. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees who the texts say that he he, they came to test Him. They asked the question that they really didn't want an answer for. They were just trying to trip Him up. We get this all the time at our church. We'll get emails from time to time from people who don't go here Often they don't live in our, even in our city, and they'll send us an email asking a question like, Hey, what do y'all believe about homosexuality? And we give them the same answer every time. Man, that's a great question. Our pastor would love to sit down with you and talk about it. When can you meet? He'd love to take you to coffee, take you to lunch, take you to breakfast. I've yet to have any takers because they don't want an answer. They want an argument, they want a soundbite. They don't want a conversation. They just want something that they can retweet or something they can post on our Google page or whatever. That's the case here with Jesus. They come to Him and ask Him questions about marriage and divorce and He just answers them this way. Have you not read what he, that He cre- who created them from the beginning? And I'll, I'll pause right there. Now, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the Bible scholars of His day. These guys knew the Hebrew Scriptures backwards and forward. They had memorized great chunks of this. And so Jesus, from the beginning of this question, answers it this way, hey, in all of your reading of the Bible, did you ever get past Genesis 1? Like, why are you asking me this question? This is such an obvious answer. But let me just give you the answer. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Like created in the image of God. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man Separate. Now, guys, I side with Jesus completely and always on this and every other topic. I'm a man under authority. I have a Lord, it's not me, and I'm going to trust him. And so, what Jesus is saying here is basically listen, to be created, the fact that you have a creator means that you cannot be self defined. It doesn't work that way. You're not the one who writes the definition. I already wrote that definition. God wrote that definition. So to be created means that you are not self-defined. To be created in the image of God means that you are created to represent Him. To make His name great, not yours. Like to sell His brand, not your own. Like everybody has their own brand now. Like, social media has made you, like, made us all narcissistic jerks. Come on. Like, we're created in the image of God and we're meant to fill all creation with that image. To be created in the image of God means that I belong to Him. I am not my own. I'm bought with a price. I don't belong to me anymore. And for all of humanity to be created in God's image means that there's no place, like there's no place for saying that one ethnicity, one race is inferior or superior. You know, in World War II, the Germans had a uh, a phrase in German that translated means "life unworthy of life." and they were referring to the Jewish people and so following their different definition that there's some life that's inferior some life that's unworthy of life what did they do well they exterminated 6 million Jews i mean it's horrific we look at that historically and it is a black mark on all of humanity and yet i mean guys by our terms that's nothing right because in our culture, we have a life that's unworthy of life, the unborn. And we have killed not 6 million, but 60 million in our own country, in the freest country in the world. To be created in the image of God, all of us, means that that is, like, should be foreign to the believer. We should always stand with life. To be created as male and female means that both. Genders can fully image, of, image God. Right? There's no inferior gender. Men are not, are not better than women and women are not better than men. To be created male and female means that there are only two genders. Gender is not a spectrum. Like I, on my uh, iPhone, I've asked the question before, like, you know, hey Siri, who is Jesus, right? Right? And Siri tells me that Jesus, Christians believe, is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Well, ask your iPhone how many genders there are. And it won't tell you, it won't use the word believe. It'll say that gender is a spectrum and there are as many potential genders as there are people on the earth. That's a fact, but Jesus is A belief. See, we're at the third stage of a moral revolution. What was condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate what had been condemned are themselves condemned. God's to be created in the image of God as male and female and joined together means that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. I mean, that's the clear teaching of Scripture. This is not new information. Like, this isn't radical teaching. This isn't the church obsessed with sex only talking about this issue. We're not the ones obsessed with sex. Like this is what the church has held to for 2,000 years. It's what before the church Israel held to for 2,000 years. This is the clear, unabridged teaching of the Hebrew and Greek Scriptures. And so, church, we, Huddo Bible Church, your pastors, staff, your elders, we side with Jesus always and completely. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And so, for the rest of the message, I just want to unpack the implications of this. Like the first one, the big one is, how in the world is a biblical sexual ethic actually good news to such a broken world? Good news to a world that's chasing after expressive individualism. Well, the first reason it's good news is because the teaching, this biblical sexual ethic, this teaching comes from the One who is literally the embodiment of love. And so if you know me, you know I don't throw around the word literally, literally a lot. It's kind of one of my pet peeves. Like when somebody tells me, oh, it's so hot in here, I'm literally on fire. I just want to smack them. I really do. I'm just like, you're not literally on fire. I want to set you literally on fire for saying that, but you're not literally on fire. Okay, that's like saying, I am 110% committed. No, you're not. It's mathematically impossible. You're stupid. Don't say that. But with all that said, can I just tell you, God is... Love. And so the one who teaches this is literally the embodiment of love. Are you, who have a different sexual ethic, are you more loving than Jesus? Are you wiser than Jesus? Are you more loving than the one who laid down his life for your sin? The one that we read about in Isaiah 52. And 53, and so that's why this is good news. Another reason this is good news is because the truest thing about you is not what you say about yourself, not what you feel about yourself. The true, uh, truest thing about you is what God says about you. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Like, <laughs> my heart's a liar. My heart tells me a lot of stupid things. Things that are untrue. My heart sets me on paths that end in destruction. So this, guys, is good news to a broken world because it clarifies, first of all, that all of us in this room and outside of this room, all of us are sexually broken. Like the effects of the fall of man has impacted all of us to differing degrees and we are all strugglers in this area. Like the fall itself created fertile soil for gender confusion. You see it right there in chapter 3 of Genesis where before man and woman had a relationship like this in perfect harmony. And afterwards, there's fighting. There's manipulation, there's blaming, there's wanting to, there's a, this desire to swap roles and take over or lead by domination. All of us are broken in this area. You see it in the curse and you see it in the immediate aftermath about what happens to the world. And guys, this is good news to a broken world because ultimately we were created for so much more than this. Like so much more than sex. So much more than self-expression. Like I'm reading this book, The Brothers Karamazov, by uh, a guy named Dostoyevsky. It's a Russian book in English because I don't know Russian, and I had to figure out how to say his name. That was hard enough. But in it, in early in the book, there's a conversation between the two of the three main brothers. Uh, the middle brother is talking to his little brother. And he's just unpacking his life and how he's chased, chased after sensuality and sex and, you know, what he calls Sodom and immorality, all kinds of stuff his whole life. And it's like a trap because it has such a, a pull, such a allure to him. And then he makes this statement. He says, The awful thing is that beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there and the battleground is the heart of man. See, Dostoevsky says that there's this fight going on, this battle, and that beauty and desire is the battleground where God and Satan contend for the hearts of men and women. And here's the good news, guys. Jesus is the greatest beauty in all creation. He's the greatest fulfillment of desire. He is the greatest prize and the greatest treasure. Like Jesus described it this way, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. And then He covers it up. And Jesus says, and then in His joy, He sells everything so that He can have that field and have that treasure. That's the Gospel. That's Jesus Himself. Guys, in our joy, we lay down everything because what we get is like trading tin for gold. Guys, this is good news for the sexually broken because sin destroys lives. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay And the worst thing that God can do for sinners in this lifetime is to allow them to define themselves. To allow them to have their own way. To allow them full expression of their desires. Romans 1 tells us that. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men. How is it revealed? What does this judgment look like? three times in that passage it says it looks like this god gave them over to their desires to their lusts to the things that they were chasing after like the worst case scenario for the, for mankind is expressive individualism run wild it's getting what we want you know i've had some people who say like we just need to Skip topics like this all together and just stick with the gospel. Can I just tell you that's exactly what we're doing? We're just sticking with the gospel because affirming this truth gives a name to the weight on the heart of sexual strugglers in our world. It shows them that this is guilt before a holy God and gives them an opportunity to repent and place their faith in Him. It shows us our need for a Savior. It magnifies the grace of God and it proclaims the Gospel itself because grace never calls wrong right. If it did, then grace would be unnecessary. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to sinners just like you and I who don't deserve it. And that's why every temptation and failure is still For even us, an opportunity for us to believe the gospel all over again. You know, years ago I was um, listening to a podcast uh, called uh, Unbelievable. It's an apologetics podcast out of England. And I really like it because they get all kinds of people on there, people of different beliefs different backgrounds, kind of discussing and debating Christianity or, you know, different religions. You have atheists on there. And so you never kind of know what you're going to get. Well, I was listening to this episode and looking forward to hearing what these guys had to say because, you know, it's very British. They can disagree without, like, getting mad at each other. That's the best. And so this episode, they said they had three same-sex attracted pastors who were going to talk about sexuality. And so my ears perked up. I'm like, okay, what are these guys going to say? I'm, I'm assuming that they're going to say, listen, like it's time for the church to move. It's time for the church to sane. we need to catch up with history. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We need to change. Instead, this is what they said. These three men who were same-sex attracted, meaning they had romantic and sexual desire or feelings for the same sex. They, they all said, listen, we have had a lot of people who say tell us how unfair it is that we can't get married. Like they can get married, we can't get married, that we're missing out. And it's just wrong, it's just unfair that the church needs to change. And so we're just here to say, have you ever heard of Jesus? Because for us, He is that treasure that we found hidden in a field and in our joy we sold everything that we might have Him. And so we just want those who are well-meaning and want to help us out, we just want them to know Jesus is enough. If our affections never change, if we never get married, never get to experience marital bliss, Jesus is enough. Enough, because we were raised in Christian homes by moms and dads who told us that the path of discipleship is a path of suffering. And maybe this is the cross we have to carry and that's okay because Jesus is worthy of that sacrifice. And then they said finally, we want people to know that sex is not what defines us. Sexual desire is not what defines us, but that Jesus is the one who defines us and we are children of God. Jesus is enough. Jesus is worthy. And Jesus defines us. And one of these speakers, a guy named Sam Albury, put it this way. When you're asked by someone who's maybe a close friend, maybe a family member, maybe a stranger, if you're asked as a believer to change on this issue, the issue of sexuality, the issue of gender, this should be your response. I see this as a loyalty issue. I see this as a lordship issue. In fact, I see it this way. Jesus literally died for me. Two thousand years ago on the cross, he hung there and my name was on his mind. All of my sins, all of my rebellion, all of my guilt and all of my shame was placed on his back and he was punished in my place. Jesus literally died for me. What have you ever done for me? Like you want me to change? You want me to shift loyalty against the one who literally died in my place. This is a loyalty issue. This is a lordship issue. This is a love issue. I side with Jesus forever and always. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word even when what it says is hard, even when what it says is challenging even when it identifies what we want most as something that will ensnare us, trap us, crush, and kill us. Lord Jesus, You have proved Yourself trustworthy when on the cross You gave Yourself for us. Lord, as we come to this table now, we want to celebrate You, celebrate Your sacrifice and proclaim Jesus, You're enough. Jesus, You're worthy. Jesus, Your definition of me is who I truly am. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. As we stand, like as all ought to stand, as we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to the front to take your communion elements if you're a follower of Christ. This is where all sinners and strugglers get to meet. We get to meet at the foot of the cross remembering the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf. Come and take your elements. Take them to your seat. And we'll take them together after this song. Thank you. Well, we want to be a church that welcomes sinners and strugglers just like us. Not by compromising the truth not by calling wrong right, not by buying into the great delusion of this culture and individual expressionism, but instead by proclaiming with our lips and with our lives on a personal level for ourselves that Jesus defines us. That Jesus is enough and that Jesus is worthy church. Go out and believe that this week. Preach that this week. Look for an opportunity to get to the Gospel. God bless you.